David acted passionately. David acted passionately in chapters 23, 24, and 25. So the question is, is passion good or bad? And the answer is no. Passion is neither good nor bad. God is good. Passion can be used either way. It depends on where it's directed. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. Last week, we covered chapters 21 and 22. Sorry that it didn't record, but there's talking points on the podcast if you were able to to listen to it. Basically covered our conversation without doing the whole 45-minute teaching. But this week, we're going to be in chapters 23, 24, and 25. Um, So hopefully, I can zip through those real fast because 25 is a long chapter. But really covering David, because in in chapters 21 and 22, David was sort of a scared kid running away from Saul. He didn't have a lot of confidence. But at the end of chapter 22, he meets up with a priest who escaped and now is on the run with David. And David seemed to have suddenly more confidence, and he remembered who God was, what he had done for him. Uh, And David seems to be on a different path now. So there's a different attitude that David is carrying with him. And you're going to see that right away as we dig into chapter 23. So here we go. First one, David is still on the run from Saul. And it says, then they told David saying, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and they are robbing the threshing floors. So what's going on is David's men are noticing that the Philistine army are doing something bad. They're raiding the neighboring towns, the neighboring Jewish towns um, during their harvest. And so just to explain what this means, because I I think you can kind of skip over the dramatic piece of this, is this is a group of farmers in an agricultural society who have done everything. They've planted, they've watered, they've taken care of of their fields. And now they've reaped in the harvest and they're spending time separating the wheat from the chaff to get the good stuff. Um, And this is their livelihood. And the Philistines, rather than doing this work on their own, are raiding the farmers and stealing their crops and taking away from their, their work that they've been doing. And so that's what they're noticing. David's men are telling him the Philistines are robbing the threshing floor. They're stealing uh, from the workers, from the agricultural uh, landlords. And so, verse 2, then, therefore, 
David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? Now, this is right away you see the difference in David, because we just spent two chapters last week discussing how David was running scared and really only concerned about his own, his own life and the relationship with him and Saul, and he sort of left God alone. And it wasn't until he was confronted with God again that he got his confidence back. And now David has changed. His heart is in a different attitude. And what is he doing? He is asking God what to do. And so he says, God, shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, look, uh, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go into Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once again. David is asking God. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. So this is the scene. David's army, David's men, which now is, has increased from 400 to 600, as you'll see as we go through this chapter, have noticed the Philistines raiding their neighbors, raiding their Jewish neighbors, taking away from their livelihood and their crops. So David says, hey, God, should we do something about this? God affirms him and says, yes. When David tells his men, they change their tune and they went, whoa, hold on. We're running scared. We're hiding from Saul. If we do something and attack the Philistines, that's going to draw attention to ourselves. Saul's going to know where we are. If we go do something publicly, why would we do that? So David says, okay, I've heard your concerns. I'm going to talk to God again. And God says, I'm going to deliver the Philistines into your hand. And so David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now it happened when Abiathar the son of Ahimelech fled to David at Keilah that he went down with an ephod in his hand. Now we actually get some information that's pretty vital. And this is why it's important that we went through the priestly garments in Exodus and the Levitical law. Abiathar had priestly garments with him. He had an ephod um, and all of the priestly garments, which came with it. Do you remember the two stones called the Urim and the Thummim? when we were going through Exodus. There's really not much that we know about the Urim and the Thummim, but we do know they were two stones hidden behind the ephod and behind the, bre- behind the breastplate in the priestly garments. And it's what they used to determine God's will. We don't know what that looks like. Um, some conjecture might be that uh, there might've been a black stone and a white stone. And without knowing which pocket it was in, you would reach in and pull out a stone. If it was a white stone, um, God's giving you the affirmative to your question. If it's the black stone, God's giving you the negative to your question. That's a possibility, but we really don't know. I was listening to uh, a pastor talk about this out of Oregon. His name is uh, Paul Laboutillier. Paul Laboutillier, I think. And he, he was saying that he's glad that we don't know much about the Urim and the Thummim, because that's how the Old Testament and the Jews decided figured out what God's will is. And if we actually understood more about them, you'd probably see them in every Christian bookstore. Like determine God's will. Here's some stones for you because that's how we kind of do things. But God didn't allow us to really know much about it or to give us a lot of instruction. But we do know that in this moment, Abiathar is with David. When David was confronted by Abiathar, that's the thing that gave David 
sort of his mojo back and his confidence to get out of this sulky attitude and have more concern about what God wanted him to do. And now that Abiathar is traveling with David, David sees a priest with him and he actually inquires what God's will is to the priest before he does something. I think that that's a pretty practical thing that we can grasp. It's important to inquire God's will before we move forward. And so Abiathar is going along with David. Now we're only six verses into chapter 23. Uh, here comes verse seven. And Saul was, was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. So Saul is told where David is, and the fears of David's army have just come true. They did something publicly, they fought the Philistines, they saved the city, and now Saul knows where they are. So then Saul called all the, all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. So what is David doing? Again, he's going to talk to God about what his next step should be. So David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. So then David said, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver you. So David and his men about 600 arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told that Saul and David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. So David's army's fears have come true. David inquires of God, what should he do? Now they just saved this city, but someone told Saul that they were there. And so Saul's coming. God tells David that Saul is coming. And God also tells David that the people of the city that they just saved will turn David into Saul. And so David escapes. And now David's in the wilderness. Verse 14, David stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. So David is now... He's in hiding in the caves of Ziph. This land, to give you an idea, just a mental picture, it's in the southern portion of Israel around the northern portion of the Dead Sea. That's where they are. So give you an idea. And it's rocky and hilly, and there's a lot of caves, and it's good hiding ground. That's where David is. He's hiding out there. It's a great hiding spot. Verse 16, then Jonathan... Saul's son arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord and David stayed in the woods and Jonathan went to his own house. So David and Jonathan get to see each other for a very brief moment in time. And you really see the contrast between Saul and Jonathan. Saul is concerned with holding on to his kingdom. Jonathan comes to David and he says, listen, even my dad knows 
you're going to be the next king. Jonathan doesn't even care that David's going to be the next king. He says, I'll be next to you. You can be the king. Because Jonathan is concerned with God's will. Saul is concerned with his own power. So then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah saying, is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods, in the hill of Hachilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now, therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Please go and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him there. For I am told he is very crafty. So some people are willing to turn David in. Now, this is interesting because the Ziphites the people who live in this area of Israel are descendants of Caleb. You remember Caleb when they were entering the promised land? Uh, when Moses was trying to enter the promised land, there were only two good reports. That was Joshua and Caleb. And only Joshua and Caleb were left of that generation wandering around in the desert before they were able to enter the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb were alive to see the promised land from that generation. Not even Moses was allowed in, but Joshua and Caleb were. These are, these are Caleb's descendants, this brave, excellent man of God. Man, they have, his descendants have changed. So these people are willing to turn in David. But Saul says, I know that he's crafty, so I want to make sure that I can trust you. Verse 23, see therefore and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty and I will go with you. And it shall be if he is in the land that I will search for him throughout the clans of Judah. So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul, but David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the plain in the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, therefore, we went to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. So they're still in that area around the Dead Sea in the rocky, cavey area. So Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul. For Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. So this is how I see this moment. They're on a mountain together in this sort of rocky area. David knows Saul is chasing him. Saul is looking for David, but they're on opposite sides of the mountain. So if you looked at it from like a up view, I think it's like a Benny Hinn sketch, you know, where they're just running away from each other and keep circling each other whatever, without ever catching up to one another. David's running away, but Saul is continuing to get closer. That's how I see it. Sort of like a, like a, like a whirlpool around a drain. Like Saul is continuing to get closer as he chases David around the mountain, but he never quite catches him. That's how I see it. So... David's on one side, uh, then Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side of the mountain. David made haste to get away from him, uh, from Saul, and Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore, Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines, so that they called the place the Rock of Escape. Then David went up from there and dwelt in strongholds at En Gedi. So that's chapter 23. Basically, you have David with a new attitude, but he's still on the run from Saul. He's still conserving his own life. And he's got now, instead of 400 men, he's, he's, his army has grown to 600 men. 
He saves a city. He opens himself out into public view to save a city from the Philistines. But the big thing that is happening with David is he is consistently inquiring God's will before he makes a move. And this is, you know, after a long time of being afraid, having that ability to repent and come back to God and continue to ask and inquire what his will is and to follow his will. This is why David is considered a man after God's own heart. It's not that David's perfect. It's that David is always trying to get better and seek God's will and repents from his bad behavior. So chapter 24, now it happened when Saul had returned from the following the Philist, uh, from following the Philistines that it was told him saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi, which is still in that same area around the Dead Sea. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave and Saul went in to attend to his needs, which uh, in some other translations, it will just tell you straightforward, Saul was going to the bathroom. He was going to relieve himself. So Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. So then the men of David said to him, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. Now remember the kind of people that were following David. The kind of people that followed David were people who were in debt and scared and had all sorts of anxieties um, and were afraid of Saul. And so this was the kind of misery that brought these people together. And now Saul is in the cave that they're staying in and hiding in. And he's there going to the bathroom and he's completely exposed. And they say to him, look, this is what God's telling you, which isn't true. This is what they're telling him, but they're putting God's name in his ear. They're trying to give him bad advice by using something that would poke David to go in the wrong way. So they say, look what God's telling you. Your enemy has been delivered into your hand. God clearly wants you to take care of this. And so David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David, he hears what they're saying and he goes and he sneaks up on Saul. And as he's sneaking up on Saul, he doesn't do what they told him to do. Instead, he cuts off a corner of the garment of Saul's robe at the hem. Now, this little piece of fabric is called the tzitzit. The tzitzit, it's hard to say in Hebrew, but I would spell it T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T, tzitzit. This hem of the garment was a part of Jewish garb. It, part of it represented the covenants and the Ten Commandments, um, but it also later became to known a place where your, it was a symbol of your authority. And that's what David cut off, the tzitzit of Saul's robe, a place that marked out Saul's authority. And Saul was the legal king of Israel. And so even though David didn't kill Saul, he still felt regret about what he did because he cut off the symbol of Saul's authority while he was still in power. And David returned to the guys that were goading him on to kill Saul while he was exposed. And he said, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. I want you to remember this moment when we deal with the next chapter. 
Uh, David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men? Now, David says more than that, but that's a good question for everyone. Why do you listen to the words of men? It's so easy to get off track when you have shifty words in your ear, usually creating an emotional argument to get you to turn away from the logic that God has put forward. So David calls out to him. David puts himself in a vulnerable position, and he bows down to him with his face towards the ground. And he says, why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks you harm? Look, the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you, but my eye spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. There's a lot going on in this, in this passage. David has put himself in a vulnerable, vulnerable position, bowing down to Saul, Saul this angry man, and he shouts out to him and he calls him dad. This is his father-in-law. This guy, David, still has this love for Saul in his heart, and he really cares. And he says, look, people were, God put you in a vulnerable position right in front of me. People were telling me to kill you, and I chose not to do it. And he says, look, I have the proof. I have the corner of your robe in my hand that sits it, the thing that shows the, your authority. I have it right here. And then he says something interesting. There is no, no evil or rebellion in my, in my hand and I have not sinned against you. David did not sin against Saul, even though he cut off the authority of his robe, because that authority had already been placed on David from the anointing that Samuel gave him. So interestingly, David feels remorse, but not repentance, because David didn't do anything wrong, because God had actually anointed David as the next king. The authority was his already. Um, so that's just an interesting little peace that I think is, is worth taking some time on. But then he says to Saul, yet you hunt my life to take it. Right after David spares him, shows him the proof, and says that he has no ill will towards him, he calls him dad. And he says, but you hunt me down in order to take my life. He says, let the Lord judge between you and me and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said this, is this your voice, my son, David? And David lifted up his voice and wept. It seems like after this, David's very emotional. Saul's about to come out of the fog for a second. And the crazy is about to be washed away for a second. 
and he's about to get caught up with truth. So he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. Saul's having a moment of clarity. He says, David, you're better than me. You're more righteous than me. I've, you, you've done only good to me, and I've only done evil to you. And you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for you have done to me, for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. In a moment of clarity, Saul tells the truth. He says, David, you're clearly the next king. You've done good. I've done evil. My hand has been against you. You have been for me. And so David's only done good to King Saul. Saul has a moment of clarity and he realizes this and he even states that David is going to be the next king. In verse 21, he says, Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Well, Saul, in this moment of vulnerability and clarity, actually says to David, please don't destroy my family when you become king. And David promises that he won't. And you'll see later on in David's life, he keeps this promise to Saul. He continues to love him even after Saul dies. So David swore to Saul, Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. After this moment of clarity, isn't it interesting that Saul does not invite David back into his house? Because the evil spirit wasn't done with Saul. This moment of clarity was fleeting. But there is this next chapter, and I want you to remember David. I want you to remember David's heart, not, cutting, not killing Saul, only choosing to cut off his robe, telling his army that he would not put his hand against Saul. That's important because you're going to see David have a different attitude in this next chapter, and you see how he got it wrong. So chapter 25 starts with, Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and, and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. So already, you know that this chapter is starting a little bit out of place. Because, hey, in case you forgot, this book is for Samuel. We haven't talked about Samuel in a while. And this is the end of Samuel's life. And Samuel is so notable even in the strain of the battle going on between David and Saul and the friendship of Jonathan and David, that they mention Samuel's end. Because this is the end of an era. Samuel, the final judge of Israel, is gone. We're now fully into the new era of the kings. And Samuel is so respected that the Israelites gather together and lament for him and bury him in Ramah. David arises and goes down to the wilderness of Paran. Verse 2, now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. So this is the next stage after we get this weird break, talking about Samuel. David's on Mount, Mount Carmel, around Mount Carmel, and he's hanging out near a guy uh, who just is really wealthy, and he's in shearing season. So 
chapter 23 is in the season for the harvest, right? That's the threshing floor. This is the same season for livestock, right? This is shearing the sheep, getting, gathering the wool. This is when all of your work is coming together. This is a celebration time. Uh, this is you reaping in your harvest when, you're, when you own livestock instead of crops. Right, so this is this guy. He's, he's in a good moment in his life. He's really wealthy. He has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He's shearing the 3,000 sheep and reaping the benefits of his harvest um, and of his work with all of his livestock. Now, the name of this man was Nabal, which you'll find out means fool. He lives up to it. You'll find out. And the name of his wife is Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. Again, another descendant of Caleb who just didn't live up to his ancestor. But Abigail, his wife, is beautiful and wise. She's a discerning and beautiful woman. This is interesting because there's only really three women who are described this way in the Bible. Well, there's a lot of beautiful women in the Bible. Sarah, Abraham's wife, for instance. Even in her old age, Abraham was afraid that people were going to try to steal him or steal her from him, and he lied to the Egyptians and, and so on. But you have Rachel, Abigail, and uh, the third one escapes my mind right now. But there's only three women in the in the Bible that are both beautiful and wise in their description. If I remember, I'll say it later. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent 10 young men and David said to them, go up to Carmel, Nabal, and greet him in my name. Now, if you have a pen or a highlighter or something, you might want to, I highlighted in my name. Um, that might be a good phrase to circle or underline. Because what David is doing is he's sending 10 people out to represent him. And he says, go tell Nabal in my name. I bring that up because Jesus asks us to pray in his name. This is a practical example of what that looks like. We have the ability to go boldly to the Father in Jesus' name because we are his representatives here. His blood has washed over us. We are, God sees his righteousness on us rather than our failure. So we're able to go to God in Jesus' name. That's why we're asked to pray in his name. So I think that's a good practical example that makes that easier to understand. These men are going on behalf of David. And so, and thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now that I have heard that you have shearers, your shepherds here uh, were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son, David. So David is sending these men out. And basically what he's telling them to say to Nabal is, your workers have been around us and we have protected them. We have made sure that you haven't lost a sheep. You haven't lost a goat. Your men have been protected and secure. And you should be thanking us for this because we've been at your service while we're out hiding. And so since it's a feast day, treat us with kindness because we've been kind to you. And so when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David and waited. Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? 
There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. So what Nabal is really saying, he's not saying who is David. He knows who David is. Everyone knows who David is. I mean, David's famous in the land. It's not that he doesn't know who David is. He's just being flippant and saying, who is this David? Who does he think he is? You know, how, how am I even supposed to know that you're really coming in David's name? Lots of servants leave their masters. How, should I, how can I know I can trust you? He says, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and, gave it, and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? Did you catch all of the phrases in there? I, 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 me, mine, right? It's like the seagulls from Finding Nemo. Mine, mine, mine. This is Nabal. Everything is his. He actually reminds me of Saul. He's so consumed with his greed, with what his kingdom holds on to with his wealth. He doesn't want to let it go. So David's young men turned on their heels and went back and they came and told him all these words. And David said to his men, every man gird his sword. So every man girded his sword and David also girded his sword. And about 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with the supplies. This is what David does. He hears the news. He hears Nabal's being a jerk and being selfish. And David doesn't do what he did in the past. He doesn't ask God anything. He just gets upset. And he says, everybody pick up your sword. We only need about 400 for this. And we're going to go take care of this Nabal guy, guy that we've been protecting. Now, I think that this is pretty practical. I think this happens to all of us. I know it happens to me. There are times where, for instance, I could be listening to worship music in my car as I'm driving, you know, 45 minutes to get here. And I'm excited um, in the mood of the music and I'm worshiping God and then somebody cuts me off and I go, what are you doing? And I, you know, give them the thumbs down. And I say, you know, what's happening? You know, I get all upset while I'm in this worship, worshipful mode because I'm concentrating on something. David's done really well at being patient and kind with Saul, but this is consuming his entire focus. And so when something comes out of left field that bothers him, that surprises him, his reaction is a gut reaction, not something that he's actively working on. And so sometimes when things hit us out of left field, we get a gut reaction. And even though we might be growing and getting closer and closer to God, our wisdom might be getting better, we might be consumed with the Spirit, when something catches us off guard, the true nature of humanity comes out of us, right? What happens when you squeeze a tube of toothpaste? You get toothpaste. What happens when you squeeze human nature out of you? You get human nature, which is sin. And this is what's happened to David. And it just shows the depravity of man, that no matter how close we are to God, no matter how much we seek him in this flesh, we will always struggle with sin. But then there's a tone change. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled him. So now someone's telling Abigail what happened. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both night and day all the time, and we were with them keeping the sheep. So one of the servants who saw this go down, one of Nabal's servants is now telling Abigail what happened. And they're saying, David protected us. His men protected us. They were good to us. I don't understand why we're being mean to them. 
Verse 17, now therefore, no one consider what you will do for harm is determined against our master, against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that no one can speak to him. I like that word scoundrel. He's just evil. No one can talk to him. So Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seas of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. So she brings out quite a spread for David and his men. And she said to her servants, go on before me. I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So she doesn't tell Nabal what's going on. She just goes out to greet David because David is on his way to kill Nabal because he's acting in haste. Verse 20, so it was as she rode on the donkey that she went down under cover of the hill and there were David and his men coming down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I have protected all all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing has missed out of all that belongs to him. And he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so. And more also to the enemies of David. If I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. Those are pretty bold words spoken by David. He's saying, I don't want to leave one servant of his that's male alive. I can't believe he's been, he's treated me this way after everything I've done for him. Now, when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. So Abigail, remember, she's a wise and beautiful woman. This is her wisdom coming out. She puts herself down at David's feet and says, David, let this sin fall on me. So you have a beautiful woman at David's feet and who is ready to attack and he's, he's not going to kill her. And so it diffuses David's anger. That's what she's doing. When Abigail saw David, she fell on her face before David. So she fell at his feet. On me, my Lord, let the sinicity be. Uh, hear the words of your maidservant. Verse 25. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. So Nabal is his name and folly is with him. That's where you see the, the name, the meaning of his name, fool. So she's saying he lives up to his name. Nabal is a fool. He lives up to his name. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of the Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming for bloodshed, and from avenging yourself with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek harm uh, for my Lord be as Nabal. So now she's really diffused the situation. She's saying, oh, since God has kept you from avenging and going after blood. So now she's invoking God into the, into the conversation after she's already kind of let down his guard. And she's saying, isn't God so good? He's kept you from seeking blood when you shouldn't do that. And if anybody goes into tax Nepal, let him be considered as big a fool as he is. This is brilliant. She's, she's a smart one. It says, and now this, this present which your maidservant has brought to you, my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. So now she's saying, look at this gift that I've brought for your men. I'm making amends. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights in the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Ooh, she's good. 
she says to David, she says to David, forgive me and forgive my sins because you fight for the Lord. You fight the Lord's battles and evil is never meant to be found in you. Uh, what do you think David's, David's shoulders are slumping at this point with what his intent was? And now she hears her saying, you can't do evil. You're God's chosen. Oh, shoot. Verse 29. Yeah. And now she's really going to dig into David's ego a little bit. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. This, she's talking about Saul. But the life of my Lord shall be, a, shall be bound in the bundle of living with the Lord your God and, he li- and the lives of your enemies. And he's saying, you know, this guy, is, he's after you, but God's going to give you life. And, and the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as, the po- as from the pocket of a sling. Now she's, she's really itching at David's memories. She's saying, God's going to take care of your enemies like a stone from a sling. And she doesn't say it, but we all know what she's referring to. David is completely gone at this point. He has nothing left to say because she's, she's so wise in how she delivers the message to David. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offensive of heart to my Lord either, that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. So she says to him, you know, God is, he's going to take care of your enemies like a stone from a sling. And he's going he's gonna to make you ruler over Israel. And aren't you going to be glad? Aren't you going to be glad when you look back in that moment when you're ruler over Israel that you didn't spill blood for no reason? You're going to look back on this moment and be thankful. And when you do, remember me. So David said to Abigail, blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice. And blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed, from avenging myself with my own hand. Now, here's the difference between David and Saul. When David is corrected, he takes the criticism, he repents, and he thanks you for correcting him. When Saul is corrected, he throws a spear at you. So there's a big difference between these two. Again, this is why David is a man after God's own heart. Verse 34, for indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left of Nabal. So David owns up to his failure and what he was intending to do. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Now, Abigail went to Nabal and there he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. Therefore, she told him nothing, little or much, until morning light. So she still holds back this news from Nabal, and he's celebrating like a king. Verse 37. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, and he became like a stone. So he's furious, and his heart is hardened. Verse 38. Then it happened after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord 
who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. Now, I told you to remember the moment with David in the cave when he cuts off the part of, uh, of Saul's robe. David had let it go in his heart that he was not going to be the one to end Saul's life. Now, David might have known at this point that he was going to be the next king of Israel. He might have known that in order for that to happen, Saul needs to die. But David had put it in his heart that he was not going to be the one to do justice. He was going to let God deal with justice. And when David is corrected by Abigail, he remembers that that's how things should go. God gets to be the one who does the justice. And about 10 days after this meeting, Nabal has probably a stroke or something of that nature that kills him pretty instantly because God dealt with the problem. David could have screwed this all up by acting passionately in a brief moment time because he let something catch him off guard and let his human nature take over. But Abigail was wise and stopped him from doing it. And God took justice into his hands rather than David doing it on God's behalf. So that's a good just principle, right? God is the one who gets the justice, right? I think of it in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus tells us, For, forgive me, like forgive the trespasses that I have as I forgive those who have trespassed against me, right? Forgive me of my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. Because that's what God is asking us to do. He's asking us to forgive others because justice is his, not ours. And this is a good practical example of this. And let's finish up real quick. Now, David, after, after all of this, goes down. David is, or Nabal is dead. And David sent and proposed to Abigail to take her as his wife. So that happened. <laughs> David decides to marry Abigail. When the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth and said, here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. So Abigail rose in haste, rode on a donkey, attended by five of her maidens, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Aminohim of Jezreel, and so both of them were his wives. But Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Pelti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. So now David has multiple wives, um, which is directly contradictory to Deuteronomy 17. When Moses lays out the laws for the future king, he says not to take of yourselves many wives. Um, so David is still acting impulsively and, and poorly. But at least when Michal had been given to another man, he made the, a wise choice in choosing Abigail, but then he added on to this, to this list. And so what are the big takeaways from this? Um, first of all, David was wise when he sought the will of God before acting. Justice is God's, not ours. And then the last thing is David acted passionately. David acted passionately in chapters 23, 24, and 25. So the question is, is passion good or bad? And the answer is no. 
Passion is neither good nor bad. God is good. Passion can be used either way. It depends on where it's directed. If passion is directed at God, it will be used for good. If passion is not directed at God, it will be used for evil. Passion is neither good or bad. God is good. That's the ultimate point of all of this. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this story. Um, Thank you for the characters, David, Jonathan, Saul, uh, the end of Samuel, Nabal and Abigail, and the lessons that we can learn from them. Help us to take this in, to learn how to direct our passion towards you so that it can be used for good. Help us to be wise and to consider your will before acting. And help us learn what wisdom is through someone like Abigail and put that into practice in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.